Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of The Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of The Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. Good morning and welcome to another episode of The Core Business Show. I'm Tim Jacquet, your host. Today, our topic is going to be a four-part series, The Power of Closing the Sell Series. Um, this is part one of part uh, series of four, which we will broadcast the course of the week. Uh, each episode is around an hour. It's, ta- it's taken from one of our seminars. So listen and enjoy. We're going to take a uh, break from our sponsor for a second, and we'll be back in a moment with the Core Business Show. You're listening to the Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. Apple Capital Group in Jacksonville, Florida, is a commercial lender that specializes in asset-based loans, equipment leasing and financing, invoice financing, commercial real estate loans, and asset-based financing in the U.S. and Canada. Apple Capital Group is a direct lender that lends on their private equity investment portfolio. 90% of most loans are decided within two hours, and vendor funding within 24 hours after documents are completed with a one-page application. No slow no's, just a quick decision and a fast yes. To get more information about lending from Apple Capital Group, call 866-611-7457. That's 866-611-7457 to speak with one of our loan specialists. Or visit us right now at applecapitalgroup.com. Welcome back to the core. Once again, here's Tim Jacquet. This is from our seminar that we've uh, we did a, four, a series of four um, four segments, and this is part one. Listen and enjoy. Welcome to another Simon and Schuster audio presentation. More than 30 years ago, a young man from Yazoo City, Mississippi made his first sales presentation. He was broke, he was scared, and he nearly failed. Today, that man, Zig Ziglar, is one of the most successful salesmen in the country. He's set records wherever he's been, in whatever he's sold. Zig's story begins wherever salesperson starts, with that first knock on the door, that first phone call. He succeeded where others failed only when he made a study of the reasons why people buy or don't buy a product. His years of experience are now before you. You're listening to Zig Ziglar's Secrets of Closing the Sale. In this private lesson, Zig Ziglar will teach you how to close in all kinds of sales situations and with all kinds of prospects. He'll teach you how to develop an instinct for closing, plus lots of ways to overcome objections. 
but you're going to hear something much more important than just the how-tos. Zig will show you why selling is something you do for the prospect and not to them. He will show you how to become an assistant buyer, helping your customers solve their problems first, last, and always. You'll learn how to communicate your enthusiasm about your product or service so well that a prospect will believe you, will trust you, and will act. You'll learn how to sell with honesty, integrity, and great humor. Good selling doesn't come naturally. It's a learned skill. So let's get going. Zig begins now by telling us how he learned a few things from his wife. She used four important closes with success. The snooker, the ownership, the embarrassment, and the affordable clothes. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Zig Ziglar live. My goodness. Thank you so very much. In 1968, we moved to Dallas, Texas. At that time, I was working with a specific company, and I was teaching a sales and motivation class for them six days a week from 9 o'clock in the morning until 9 o'clock in the evening. I was as busy as I have ever been in my life. The family was living there in the motel. Now, rather obviously, you cannot have uh, three daughters, a son, and your wife sitting in a motel very long and survive financially, not to mention all of the inconveniences and everything else. So we had to have a house. Well, I was so busy, I literally did not have time to go house hunting, so uh, the redhead and I discussed at great length the house. Incidentally, when I talk about my wife, uh, I refer to her as the redhead. Uh, she is, as uh, many of you know, a decided redhead, uh, meaning simply that one day she just decided, uh, you know, to be a redhead. When I talk about her, that's what I call her. When I talk to her, I call her Sugar Baby. Her name is Jean. So a lot of people ask if she does have a name. Well, anyhow, she and I uh, were talking about a house. And for those of you who are in the real estate business, you'll appreciate this fact. We made a definite decision as to how much we were going to invest in the house. I mean, we explored it from one end to another and came up with a reasonable figure. Now, I know it was reasonable because the redhead explained that it was reasonable. Uh, personally, I thought it looked like the foreign aid bill of the world. But we arrived at the decision. Everything's all set, I thought. And then at the last minute, she said, Honey, she said, Suppose I find the dream house. I mean, exactly what we've always dreamed of owning. How much more could we invest? Now, that brings on a whole new conversation. I mean, that opens a brand new keg of worms, so to speak. And so we explored it back and forth and back and forth. And we finally agreed that if she found exactly what she wanted, the lifetime solution to all of our housing needs forever and ever and ever, truly the dream house of all dream houses, we could invest another $20,000. Now, I know as you listen to this recording... And you say to yourself, another $20,000? Boy, that dude sounds like the last of the big spenders. But let me tell you something. In 1968, for $20,000 in Dallas, Texas, you could build an additional 2,000 square feet of floor space. Now, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, today, you can build a reasonably nice patio. 
provided it's not too big or too fancy, you know. But in 1968, things were different, so we said, okay, we'll go another 20,000 bucks. Well, she went house hunting, and I got to give that redhead credit, she really hunted. I mean, she carefully, thoroughly, meticulously looked at two houses. When she walked in the front door of that second house, it was all over. That was it. I mean, house hunting is now over. When I got back that evening to the room, slightly after 9 o'clock, she was seated there on the king-size bed, and the bed was vibrating. I mean, she was excited. She hopped up, she ran over to me, gave me a big old kiss and a big old hug, and she said, Honey, I have found our dream house. It is absolutely magnificent. Out in the north end of town in North Dallas, great big lot there, honey, and the house itself has four beautiful bedrooms, has three and a half baths, and it has a great big den on a great big lot, plenty of room out in the backyard for that swimming pool of yours, and a great big garage. I said, honey, wait a minute, wait a minute, how much does that house cost? Ah, oh, she said, honey, you'll have to see it. <laughs> But she said, let me tell you, those cathedral ceilings in it are absolutely beautiful. And that garage, I started to tell you, has plenty of room not only for the two cars, but all of our tools. And there's an 11 by 11 spot in there, ideal for that little office you've been dreaming about, so you can do your writing. And she said, honey, the master bedroom is so big, we've got to get us a riding vacuum cleaner. She said, I'll tell you, that is some more house. And I said, sweetheart, how much does that house cost? And she told me. And it was $18,000. More than the maximum, which was already $20,000 more than we had any business spending. I said, sweetheart, you know, perfectly good and well, we can't buy a house like that. She said, well, I know that, honey. But she said, you know, we don't know the first thing about real estate in Dallas. So I did invite the builder to come by tomorrow evening when you finish teaching your class and take us out so you could see it and we could kind of get a benchmark as to what real estate really was here in Dallas. And I said, well, I'll be glad to go out, but you can rest assured there's no way we're going to be able to buy a house like that. She said, well, don't worry about it. When we pulled into the driveway the next evening, I knew I had a problem. It was exactly what I wanted. I mean a beautiful home on a really nice lot in a nice area of town, fairly quiet and all the good stuff, you know. And when we walked in the front door, I knew I was in bad trouble. Now, the reason I knew I was in bad trouble because had I been an architect, that home was laid out exactly as I would have laid out a home. I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous. And at that point, I did to that redhead what your prospects have been doing to you all of your sales life and will continue to do to you all of your sales life, regardless of how long you stay in it. Even though I was excited about that house, even though I badly wanted it, I acted as if I had no interest whatever. Now, this leads us into what I call the snooker close. You see, everybody, in every transaction, you make a sale. Either you, the salesperson, sells the prospect that they can and should buy, or they sell you that they can't or won't buy. 
Now, this first close actually has to do with the fact that the prospect often is the better salesman, as you'll notice I deal with throughout this series. Well, what I'm talking about when I say this snooker close, I acted as if I had no interest for one very simple reason, and so does your prospects act the same way. You see, I was scared to death that if I displayed any interest, that that redhead and that builder would gang up on me and put the pressure on me to buy something I already wanted to buy, was scared I was going to buy, and knew I had no business buying uh, because of the price involvement there. So what did I do? A perfectly natural defensive mechanism. I became a grunter for the rest of the evening. You know, I just, um, yeah, yeah, um, uh, you know. I mean, just, I, I just acted as if I had no interest whatever. Now, when we walked in the front door of that house, and I'm not going to accuse uh, that redhead of mine of ever having any dramatic training. As a matter of fact, I know she hasn't, uh, I don't think. But as we walked in, there's a nice chandelier in the entranceway. And she stopped, it must have been, for something like three-fifths of a second. And she was turned slight to the sideways. She just glanced up, paused instantly, and moved on. Message delivered. Message received. When we walked into the den, she said, Now look, honey, isn't this absolutely gorgeous? See how big it is? We can put this big king-size sofa over here, and we'll set the television set over here, and now we get into what I call the ownership clothes because all of a sudden everything gets to being mine. She said, Look at this fireplace, honey. When you sit here uh, in front of the, your television set on Sunday afternoon watching the Cowboys play, watching your fireplace burn, she said, It's really going to be an exciting occasion. See how monster it is. And then look over here, you can put all of your books in your bookcase right here next to the fire. Oh, everything gets to be mine. That's the ownership clause, you see. If you will, in fact, begin to paint your prospects into owning whatever it is that you're selling, you're going to be way, way ahead of the game. Paint them in the picture of satisfaction and gratification, but you are assuming something, and we'll get into the assumptive clause in many different ways throughout the series, but you begin to assume something. Well, the redhead is conducting this tour, and the first thing she did is she ran then right on back to the master bedroom. She said, see, honey, how big I I told you it was. We can put the king-size bed over here. And know the table and chairs that we have. You know how you and I like to get up in the morning early and have that cup of coffee. We can sit them right over here. And look at your closet. Why, honey, even as messy as you are, there's plenty of room for everything. And look out here. And she opened the back door. You see, I've already measured it. Right out here, we'll put one end of that air-shaped swimming pool you've been talking about. And the other end is going to be right down here. And you see, we go in the garage. See how big I told you the garage was? And here's the place where that office is going to be. I've already measured it out. It'll be right here. And Here's the guest bedroom. You know, Susie's going to be grown up and gone one of these first days, and we'll all, we've always wanted a guest bedroom. Here it is. Well, over and around now. She must have toured the house three times to show me everything. Finally, she got through it, and she said, Well, what do you think? Well, what you going to say? I mean, unless you're going to be totally obnoxious, and I'm not about to treat that redhead that way, you've you got to admit that it's beautiful. So I said, well, sweetheart, it's absolutely gorgeous. I love it. But you know perfectly good and well that we can't buy a house like that. And she said, well, I know that, honey. She said, I just wanted you to see something really nice. She said, now, we'll go look at something cheap. 
There wasn't much else said about the house that evening. We went back to the hotel, motel, went to bed, went to sleep, got up the next morning. I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth, and I know you'll agree that when you got a mouthful of toothbrush, you're handicapped, you know, <laughs> at least from a conversational point of view. So she casually strode in and uh, started asking questions. And if you'll notice in the world of selling, questions are so critically important. And as she walked in, she said, honey, how long are we going to live in Dallas? And one of her years, she said, how long? And I pulled my toothbrush out of my mouth and I said, 100 years. I said, I'm 42 years old, going to live to be 142. We'll be here 100 years. She said, no, I mean really. I said, I mean really too. She said, then you obviously think we're going to be here 30 years. I said, you can absolutely guarantee it. We're going to be here 30 years. She said, honey, 30 years, and there's $18,000. See, she forgot about the $20,000. She forgot about the original price. She forgot about the insurance, the finance, and she forgot about all of those other things. She said, 30 years, $18,000. How much more is that a year? I said, well, that's $600 a year. She said, how much is that a month? I said, what, sweetheart, that's $50 a month. She said, how much is that a day? I said, now, come on, sweetheart. I said, your arithmetic just as good as mine. You know, perfectly good and well, that's about a dollar and 75 cents a day. But I said, why do you ask all these questions? And she said, "Uh, honey, could I ask you just one more question? And now, you know, I had a distinct feeling. There she stood, all five feet one of her, with that little twinkle in her eyes, which in so many words were saying, look out, honey, you're just about to get it. <laughs> and I knew I was being had. But the interesting thing about sales technique, if it's effective, in the hands of a good person, if you've communicated properly, there's not a whole lot that can be done about it, even if you wanted to do something about it. And see, that brings up a point I don't want you to miss because what we as salespeople must understand always is that if the prospect has a problem, they want to solve it. You see, we're not there in an adversary position, as I'll describe in a moment or two. But they have a problem, they want to solve that problem, and so there she stands, all five feet, one of you know, with that look out, honey, you're fixing to be had a look in her face, you know, and in her eyes. And the next question she asked simply was this, honey... Would you give another dollar and 70 or 75 cents a day to have a happy wife (laughs) instead of just a wife? Uh, Guess where we live. (laughs) Now, you see, the interesting thing is that this story, which is true, And this story uh, involves there what I call the embarrassment close. You see, when she was talking there about, now we'll go look at something cheap, and now she's talking about, would you give another dollar or 70 or 75 cents? You don't think for a minute that she was trying uh, to embarrass me into getting it, do you? But uh, before you answer, let me simply say that the results were the same. Now, I know her motives are pure, but I also know that she wanted that house. I also want to communicate to you that the sales process is a constant closing process. And I want to point out a number of very significant lessons as we go through this procedure. The first thing that I want to particularly point out is the fact that she and that process 
of showing me that it was affordable, she had done some things which I think are important for you to understand. So let's look at the lessons in addition to the closes which we've already dealt with. First lesson is the fact that she translated. That simply is to break it down into an affordable amount. You see, that is so important. You've got to make it easy for that prospect to buy. And if you can make it easy for that prospect to buy, then rather obviously your chance of making that sale is going to be dramatically improved. And so as we go about the translation, the second lesson, after you get it translated to fit your own situation, the second lesson that the redhead teaches us is that she became hard of hearing. She never once heard me say we can't afford it. She never once heard me say, well, you know, this is out of our price range. She never once heard all of those things. She wasn't about to listen to any negative talk about what she couldn't have when she'd already made up her mind that she wanted something significant. Now, I want you also to understand that a lot of times when a prospect says we're not interested, what they are really saying at that point is, I'm not going to give you my big stack of money for your little stack of benefits. And so what we've got to do is understand and translate what the benefits are to them because if the benefits are high enough, then the sale gets to be easier and easier and easier. The third lesson is that the redhead never became defensive. She never became argumentative. She was never antagonistic. Instead, she was lovingly and enthusiastically optimistic from the word go that she was going to make the sale. There's something else, too. She was confident in me, and in a way it was quite complimentary that she was confident that I could go out and make more sales or get more speaking engagements, and so consequently I could handle the bigger payment. So really, I took it as that after she had carefully explained it to me. Fourth lesson, she asked lots of questions which led me to the decision. Now, one point which many people seem to miss is the fact that every professional whether they are accountants or tax consultants or doctors or lawyers, ask an awful lot of questions. It's called the Socratic method of leading people to decisions. One of the most frustrating things that we as salespeople ever encounter is when we have gotten so close to a sale and we know we should have made the sale. We have convinced them that it's fairly priced. We've convinced them of its quality. We've convinced them it can perform. We have convinced them of everything. We've convinced them, but we still leave without a sale. There's a difference between convincing and persuading. Now the question is, how do you persuade people? And the answer is, you don't persuade them by telling you persuade them by asking. And that's what this really is all about. How do you ask people in order to persuade them? Now, the fifth lesson that I want to uh, bring out on this particular thing is she understood what her mission was. Exactly she knew what it was. It was to make an $18,000 sale. Now, my listening friends, let me encourage you now to be all ears in case you've uh, drifted even for a minute now. Become all ears, please, because... She made an $18,000 sale. She knew that was her objective. You might say, well, surely the house costs more than that. It costs a lot more than that. 
But she had the objective of an $18,000 sale because before she had ever left the room, she and I had discussed it. She had already made the initial sale with a full amount. She had already sold me on the other $20,000. Now, why should she try to make that sale again? It's all set. She had to make an $18,000 sale. Now, that's psychologically very important because, you see, an $18,000 sale in the mind of the salesperson is considerably easier to make than uh, one that's ten times that big or five times that big or whatever. The sixth lesson I want to bring out is the prospect was well known by the salesperson in this case. I was the prospect. The redhead was the salesperson. Now, obviously, you cannot learn as much about every prospect you deal with as she knew about me. The point is still the same. You need to learn as much as you can about your prospects before you see them, particularly if you are selling something of significance as far as price and values are concerned. Lesson number seven in this story is simply this. When we left Columbia, South Carolina and moved to Dallas, I said to the redhead, sweetheart, there are three things which I want in a house. Now, you can do everything else, but there are three things I want. First of all, I want a swimming pool. Second, I want a circle drive for convenience sake. And third, I want a small office in that house so I can do my writing. Now, the house we bought in Dallas, Texas had a lot of things. But there were three things that house did not have. Now, is there anybody here in this live audience today who can guess as to the three things that house did not have? That's exactly right. <laughs> no swimming pool, no office, no circle drive. But that was not a problem. And here is a point that you want to burn into your mind wherever you go, whatever you sell. A lot of people don't know what to want because they don't know what's available. Have you ever gone in a store looking for a pink dress and walked out with a gray suit? Have you ever walked in a shoe shop looking for a pair of slides and left with a pair of pumps? Did you ever go in looking uh, for a navy blue suit and left with a brown suede sport coat? Have you ever, in other words, went in looking for one thing and bought something else? I think everybody here has done exactly that. Now, what happened in, uh, in this particular case is very simple. The redhead pointed out to me by measurement exactly where that swimming pool was going to go. She pointed out exactly where the office was going to go, and she pointed out exactly where the circle drive was going to go, but she just took it one step further. She said, honey, isn't it nice that we're going to be able to design our own instead of having to depend on some architect or builder who didn't really know what we wanted? Isn't that great? You see, she took what appeared to be a lemon and made it into a lemonade with a little creative imagination there. And I believe you'll agree that is a significant point we need to understand. Zig Ziglar continues his introduction to salesmanship by explaining the five reasons people won't buy and how to overcome those reasons. There's a lot of good common sense ahead, plus some great closes, like the bride, want it, alternate choice, and the now or never close. Here's Zig. Now, there are five basic reasons why your prospect will not buy from you. That's no need, no money, no hurry, no desire, and no trust. Now, because those are so critically important, you need to really explore them in a little more depth. First is no need. Well, let me em emphasize that people don't buy just what they need. If they did, our economy would be in a shambles. How big a house do you really need? 
How many clothes do you really need? How many suits? How many dresses? How many skirts? How many blouses? How many cars do you really need? Are you eating more food than you really need to eat? How many pair of shoes do you need? How much vacation do you really need? Uh, how many television sets do you really need? Now, when the question comes up, what do you need? The answer is we don't sell just what people need. We sell people what they want. Now, how effective will you be at? Well, who drives the nicest car, the man who sells the Mercedes or the man who sells bread? I think that answers the question in your own mind as to who is going to be selling the most of what. In other words, what I'm really saying is very simply that if we had to depend on what people needed, then we would be selling very little. Fortunately, we sell people what they want. Many times when the prospect says no, N-O, they say it because they do not know. K-N-O-W, enough. So no, because they don't know. Now, if you will remember, in the prospect's mind, he's got a pair of scales. And he's using these scales to make the decision. And when he starts out listening to what you've got to say, in his mind, the price is sky high. And the benefit or value is way low. Now, he is not going to give you a big stack of money in his mind, that is, for a little stack of value. Now, there is no way you're going to get the price down to his value at that point. If you do, a lot of bankrupt companies will tell you what happens. A lot of bankrupt salespeople will tell you what happens. So what you've got to do is you've got to change the value of what you're offering by giving them additional information. And we will deal with that at great length before the series is over. So understand when they say no, it's because they don't. K-N-O-W. Second reason people don't buy is they don't have any money. Now there are some people who really do not have any money. And I don't care how much persuasion you use, you're not going to manufacture. But let me ask you a question, and incidentally, I don't want to disillusion any of you, particularly if you are new in the world of selling. But some people who've said no to you, how many of you had a kind of sneaky underlying suspicion that that dude is lying to you? Could I see your hands? Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. A lot of them who say they don't have the money actually do have the money, but they just simply are not saying, I have the money for you. Let me give you a little uh, close. I call it the wanted close, which happened to me not too long after I got in the world of selling. I was up in the little town of Lancaster, South Carolina, in a rural area, the Buford community, about eight miles out of town, headed east. And I put on a demonstration for a Funderburg family. They were chicken farmers. I mean, they raised chickens for a living. I had put the demonstration on, and I had a chance to plunder through their cabinets. They had three or four couples in, and I'd cooked them a meal. This was just a small one. And in plundering around the cabinets, I discovered they literally had nothing to cook in. I don't know how they even survived. An old beat-up agate pot there, a, a black skillet that uh, it wasn't the old iron skillet even. It was just a black skillet. Uh, a boiler there, an aluminum boiler without any handle. It was terrible. And I tried, after the demonstration, we normally have made the sale or we've missed the sale, and it's a question of finding out exactly what they need and making the terms or arranging the terms for them to buy. 
Well, I made the presentation, and I tried for well over an hour to close the sale. Normally, I never stayed anything like that long, uh, but I tried for over an hour. Mrs. Funderburg kept saying, can't afford it, no money, can't afford it, no money. Can't. Sounded like a broken record. That was all she could say, can't afford it. Well, I don't know whether I said it or she said it or who said it, but something was said about fine china. I'll tell you, when the word fine china was spoken, Mrs. Funderburg's eyes lighted up like the proverbial light bird. She said, do you have fine china? I said, Miss Funderburg just happens to be the finest in the whole world. She said, do you have any with you? I said, you are in luck. Well, quicker than a bunny rabbit, I scooted out to the car. I brought my china samples in, and all I had to do was show the patterns and let her choose the one she wanted. And she gave me an order for china without the first objection, and it was considerably larger than the order for the cookware, which I'd been desperately trying to sell. Now, let me tell you something. That lady desperately needed a set of cookware. Desperately. I would suspect based on uh, their lifestyle and their home and the friends who had been over and everything else, I would suspect that that lady will use that set of china maybe once a year, if that often. But don't ever overlook something. All of her life she had wanted a set of fine china. And when people find exactly what they want, Somehow or another, they're going to scare up the money and make the arrangements in order to get it. You see what I'm really saying? The key to selling more is to uncover the real reason why they are not buying and then discover the underlying reason or what they really want in life, and you can sell a lot more. Now, Ms. Funderburg bought for three basic reasons. Number one is the fact that she wanted it very badly. Now, also, I got to give myself a little credit. I was listening carefully and looking at her eyeballs. And when something was said about China and she lighted up, I instantly tuned in on exactly what she wanted. And the second, because I had been working in that community for well over a year, she had come to trust me. She knew me before I got there. She trusted me as a person. I believe that's another reason that she bought. And then the third reason was I was courteously persistent in my role as a probing assistant buyer. Had I folded my tent too quickly, the prolonged discussion never would have brought out her need for China. In other words, there's one reason right there why we do not need to throw in the towel at the first sign of resistance. We need, as I will say later, to be pleasant and polite and professional, but persistence is a legitimate approach. Now, realistically, this is a sales point I don't want you to miss. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say this is profound. And when I say it is profound, you really want to tune those ears in because it's profound. People buy what they want. When they want it more than they want the money it costs. Now that's very simple, but it also is very profound. People buy what they want when they want it more than they want the money which that product costs. And then there's the third reason people don't buy, and we call this the bride clothes. It's the no hurry clothes. Many people basically are procrastinators. A lot of people just simply are not decision makers. And so when the prospect says they're just not in a hurry, 
What do you mean I got to buy today? I'm 39 years old. I've lived all of my life without it. Or you're not going to close a store, are you? I mean, you're not just passing through town, are you? Why should I buy today? Well, after you have covered a reasonable amount of territory and you're still not making any progress, I discovered many years ago that this little approach was very effective. When the sale was apparently lost, I'd kind of fold my briefcase, fold my hands in a rate and say, well, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe it is best that you wait. Because any time you make a decision to invest in something, it obviously is going to cost you money. And there's always a possibility of loss. I know a couple of things in my life I probably would have been better off had I waited. I know when we got married, had we waited just another 20 years, we could have had a honeymoon to have ended all honeymoons. I know when we started our family, that was a mistake because children cost money. Had we waited just another 15 or 20 years, we could have given those kids everything. I know when we bought our first house, that was probably a mistake because in another 30 or 40 years, we could really have built us a mansion. The problem, Mr. Prospect, with waiting until everything is just right before you do anything is... You might end up like this poem I read. The bride, white of hair, is stooped over her cane. Her footsteps, uncertain, need guiding. While down the opposite church aisle, with a wan, toothless smile, the bridegroom in wheelchair comes riding. Now, who is this elderly couple thus wed? Well, you'll find when you've closely explored it that here is that rare most conservative pair who waited till they could afford it. <laughs>
If you really are puzzled as to why anybody would not want to buy your product, then you are on the right track. It's hard for me to understand why anybody would not want what I sell. But this leads us into what I call the now or never close. Never will I forget, and again, this is a, another cookware story. I was working in the little community of Elgin, South Carolina, again, just a couple of years after I entered the world of selling. And I demonstrated for a widow one morning. We had what we call a cake and applesauce program. We'd go door to door, and I'd bake a little cake. It only took seven minutes, and I'd cook a little pan of apples to demonstrate what our set of cookware would do. This lady let me in. I demonstrated for her. When I got through, I started to uh, close, and she asked the price, and then, of course, I shared that with her. And when I told her the price, I'll tell you, she just about screamed, Oh, Mr. Ziegler, oh, that's a lot of money. I mean, she really went into the details. And then she started explaining to me why she could not buy that set of cookware. She said, I'm a widow. She said, I live here by myself. My son lives in that house right there in the front yard. She said, I eat breakfast with him every morning. She said, I have lunch over at the mill. And she said, I don't eat any dinner. She said, the only time I would ever use that set of cookware is on Sunday. And she said, you know, I'm getting close to retirement age, and all I'll have is just a few dollars in retirement, a little Social Security. And she said, I've got to save every dime I can get. And she said, that set of cookware is expensive. She had given me every reason known to man why she could not buy that set of cookware. Along about then, you know, my, my spirits were pretty well dragging. Fortunately, I kept the smile on my face because the lady kept talking said the most beautiful words I've ever heard. But she said, you know, Mr. Ziegler, all of my life, I've wanted a really nice matched set of cookware. And if I don't get it right now, I'll never get it. She bought. Now, when I talk about the now or never close, I really think in terms of wouldn't it be unfortunate if our belief in what we sell was not at least as deep as the belief and desire and conviction of the prospect that we're calling on. You see, that belief is transferred. If we really believe in what we're selling, then we are going to have a much better chance of making that sale. When I think about desire, I want to also tie into here another profound statement for salespeople. Remember in the world of selling that the fear of loss is greater than the desire for gain. Until that morning, I thought I'd believed in what I was selling. But until I encountered a lady who had dreamed of it all of her life, I really did not fully comprehend what belief in a product was. Now, the fifth reason that people do not buy is because they do not trust us. So now, how do you become trustworthy? By being the right kind of person. Leona M. Helmsley of the Helmsley and Harley Hotels put it this way. She said, I don't hire people who have to be told to be nice. I hire nice people.
through his sales career, Zig Ziglar has succeeded by thinking of himself as a partner, as someone who sits on the same side of the table with the prospect. But to be a real partner, you need to have one essential element, integrity. You need to be trustworthy. As Zig will tell you, good closing comes from good selling, and good selling comes from good people. The most important persuasion tool you have in your entire arsenal is your integrity. And your persuasive ability will be infinitely improved if you can honestly say, I'm the right kind of a person in the world of selling. I believe personally that credibility is the most important factor. You remember, the fear of loss is greater than the desire for gain. And most people buy the old adage that you can't make a good deal with a bad guy. You just can't do it. I learned that when I was a child, and it has saved me an enormous amount of money over the years. You can't make a good deal with a bad guy. Let me ask those of you in this live uh, audience and those of you who are listening to this in the recording, you answer the question too. What is the average commission that you make on the sales you almost make? I mean, they don't pay you anything? Nothing? I'm talking about now if you really get close. I mean the prospect has the pen in hand and actually they don't give you anything at all for that. No kidding. That's the way they do it in Dallas. And that's the way they handle it in Tampa. That's the way they handle it in Albuquerque and in Denver. Isn't it the most frustrating thing in the world for you as a salesperson to get so close? Oh, you can smell it. You can taste it. You can feel it. You can touch it. Oh, it's there. But somehow or another, you don't quite make it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever gone in to your manager and said to him, you know, this is one of the toughest sales I have ever made in my life. As a matter of fact, I came within a whisper of not making it. Oh, I almost missed it. Now, because I almost missed it, I don't really think I'm entitled to full commission on this one. Why don't you just cut my commission half in two? I know you do that real often, don't you? Okay. Now, what is all of this about? What I'm saying is the difference between barely making it and barely missing it is about that much everywhere except at the commission statement point. And then it gets to be dramatically different. And see, everybody works on a commission. Whether you're on salary or commission, you're on commission. Because, my friend, if you don't perform, then pretty soon that salary is going to stop. So whether you're on salary or commission, you are, in fact, on commission. And credibility is the most important thing. Now, there's a lot of psychology involved, and I don't claim to be a psychologist, but you need to know some of the basic principles, and that's the reason that we cover so much of it here. Now, if you've ever closed a sale, I'm not going to teach you how to close. What I will attempt to do is improve your closing percentage because if we can change that percentage by just 10%, if you will visualize what that will mean to you, and I'm fervently convinced that unless you're selling more than about 80% of your prospects, that we can increase it at least 10%. And let's set up a hypothetical example. Let's say you're in the world of direct selling and you call on 1,000 prospects a year. You're currently selling 50% of them. If we can improve that to 60%, that other 10% will involve 100 more sales, but it'll increase your income more than 20%. 
For the simple reason your expenses remain exactly the same and all of that gets to be net income and that's a major, major difference. Need to understand three very important things. Number one, good closing comes from good selling and good selling comes from good people. So the question you ask yourself, am I good people? Number two, this series is designed to help you develop what I call a closing instinct. And number three, you will learn many specific new closes. When I talk about the closing instinct, it's a sixth sense which will be developed over a period of time and you become an assistant buyer. Incidentally, I keep saying closing because closing is the glamour part of selling. But I want to also stress that closing is no more important than prospecting. If you don't have a prospect, how are you going to close? Closing is no more important than making appointments. If you don't have the appointment, how are you going to close? Closing is no more important than telling a persuasive story. Uh, you can't make them buy with a close. You create the desire by letting them see the benefits. You've got to have a good presentation. And yet closing gets all the attention because it's the glamour part of selling. That is the bottom line. But let me tell you, in addition to this information, you also need information along the other lines. But because closing is payday, and a lot of people have so much confusion about it, and too many people don't really know enough about it, that's the reason we give as much attention here as we do. I've had so many salespeople say, well, I can get prospects, I can get appointments, I can uh, tell a good story, but in other words, I'm a good salesman, but I just can't close the sale. John M. Wilson, who wrote the book on selling, simply said this. He said, anybody who cannot close is not a salesman. You can say anything else you want to, but they literally are not a salesman. You cannot be a good salesman unless you can close. When you get the prospect, now you're on first base. When you get the appointment, you're on second base. When you tell a good story, you're on third base, and so far, nobody's made a dime. And the prospect is not benefited at all. You've got to get them home in order for it to be profitable. To close, to continue the analogy, in baseball, for example, you can hit the ball out of the park. But if you don't touch all of the bases, then you are still not going to score. In selling, you can do everything right, but unless you close the sale, there's going to be no payday. To continue this analogy, the score is important because it converts invested time to profitable time. But I insist the close is no more important or no less important than the other things. Closing basically is an attitude. There's a difference in results when you have those little things working for you. Things like a good shine on your shoes, the well-pressed suit, the skirt or the dress, which is neat. The neatness of your hair, the way your tie blends and is tied. Whether you're neat and clean shaven, whether your makeup is fresh and properly applied, whether you're overdressed or underdressed, whether you're smiling and courteous, on time, thoughtful and considerate of your prospect's time, whether you're smoking or chewing gum, whether you're organized and practice good human relations with follow-up reminders and thank you notes, and countless other little things that'll make the difference in making the sale or missing the sale. I'm not telling you anything at this point that most of you do not already know. 
But I'm going to insist we need to be reminded of these things in order to stay professional. The list is endless, but in the final analysis, more often than not, it's one or more of the little things which communicate to your prospect that you believe in what you're doing, that you're interested in serving him, that you do feel you're offering the best product or service at the best price, and it will be in his best interest to buy. When you get it all together, again, the question is not, will I succeed, but when will the success come and in what quantity? The question comes up, when should I close? The first thing I learned in the world of selling, and I started in direct sales in the cookware business, first thing I was told that I remember was we'd have a meeting and they'd say, you close early, you close often, and you close late. How many of you have been told that in the world of selling? Close early, close often, and close late. Well, that's two-thirds right. The wrong part, as far as I'm concerned, is to be absolutely certain that you do not close too early. Now, what is too early? Too early is when you attempt to close before you have established value. If you close before or attempt to close before you've established value, then you come across as a high-pressure individual who wants to get the sale so you can terminate this interview and get on and see another prospect. You're really saying, I'm not really interested in you. I am interested in me making the sale so I can go somewhere else. Now, if you try to close too early and fail, then the prospect now throws up that little wall. And it's going to be far more difficult to scale that wall than had you not been a little more careful and established value before you attempted to close the sale. Your prospect, regardless, and this also is what I call a profound statement, your prospect, regardless of the product you sell, buy the benefits to them which your product offers. In short, when you convince the prospect that your product scratches where he itches, he'll buy. When you make him itch for ownership, he'll scratch around until he comes up with the money. That's a fact. When do you make the effort to close the sale? When I was in the life insurance business, we had what we call the two-call procedure. And in the two-call procedure, we would go on the first call and we would use it as a fact-finding interview. Get the financial data, find out what the individual wanted in life, what some of their plans were and so forth. And then we came back with an extremely elaborate proposal. And when we came back with a proposal, the first thing we did was to let them know that we were there to make the sale. We did not attempt to close it at that point, but we let them know. Now, how did we do it? This way. I took uh, the proposal out, and it was, as I say, fairly elaborate. It was in a neat little folder there, and looked like it had about 15 pages, and that's about what it did have in it. And I would take a blank sheet of paper, and I'd say to the prospect, Mr. Prospect, as you can see, I have in front of me a blank sheet of paper. Now, obviously, there's nothing on it for you either to understand or to misunderstand. It is clear. It is plain. Over here, I have the proposal. Now, it's fairly elaborate. And my plans are simply these. To explain this proposal in such a way that it will be just as clear and just as plain as this blank, sheet of paper. And if I fail to make the proposal just as plain and just as clear as the blank sheet of paper, I will understand 
any reluctance on your part to make a decision. Then, Mr. Prospect, I'll also say this. If I can make this extremely plain to you, and if you become convinced in your own mind that it is in your best interest to make a decision this evening, a yes decision, I'm going to ask you to do so. If, on the other hand, you don't believe it is in your best interest to say yes, I'm also going to ask you to say no. And then the close. We call it the, is that fair enough close? The question is simple. Is that fair enough? Now, in my mind, that is so beautiful and so clear. When I started doing that in the life insurance business, not only did my closing percentage increase at least 10%, but my volume went up rather substantially because we virtually eliminated any additional calls. And by doing it that way, not only did I get better acceptance from the prospects, but my time was far more effectively used. And my next statement is going to be kind of shocking to you because we call this the new decision close. But listen very carefully because I want you to understand what I mean when I say you're going to be shocked. When a prospect says no, the odds are at least 100 to 1 that you're not going to be able to get them to change their mind. Let me say it again. When the prospect says no, the odds are at least 100 to 1 that you're not going to be able to get them to change their mind. You heard it right. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, now, wait a minute, Ziegler, on your fast-talking, cotton-picking eyes. In my sales career, I've had prospects sell me no, 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 no. And then they end up buying. Oh, I don't doubt that a moment. Others say 90% of my business comes after the prospect says no. I don't doubt that a moment either. I asked the redhead to marry me. She said no. Asked her again. She said no. Asked her the third time no. Fourth time no. Fifth time no. Sixth time she said okay. No, she did not change her mind. When I was in the life insurance business, we had what we call the two. What she did was a very simple thing, and you need to understand this. Before you can get a prospect to change their mind, you've got to get them to admit they were wrong. Now, my friend, that's a tough sale to make, to get a prospect to admit they're wrong. You have trouble admitting you're wrong. I have trouble admitting that I am wrong. Then what did the redhead do? Did she change her mind? Never. She made a new decision based on new information. That's exactly what your prospect will do for you. They'll be delighted to make a new decision based on new information. Why didn't you tell me that you could get me an 11% loan on this home? That makes all the difference in the world. With new information, they're making a new decision. Why didn't you tell me we could get this with four in the floor? That teenager of mine would be really upset if we didn't have that. He's making a new decision based on new information. Why didn't you tell me double indemnity and waiver of premium was available at this amount? Man, that makes all the difference in the world. They're making a new decision based on new information. Why didn't you tell me that this included a training manual with specific instructions so we could teach instead of just talk? 
That's a new bit of information which enables them to make new decisions. Let me ask you some questions as we go along here. The sales process, incidentally, does demand that you try for the close as soon as you've established value. You don't want to wait until the last minute. You don't want to wait until you give all the information by any stretch of imagination. If you do wait until the last minute, then you can rest assured that some prospects are just going to automatically say no, whatever the first closing attempt is. More importantly, they fear that they will be made to look foolish if they make a fast decision and say yes the first time it is offered. What they really need to find out is as much information so they can make an intelligent decision. Just keep remembering that the fear of loss is greater than the desire for gain. Make the prospect feel secure that a yes decision is a right decision. In short, you make it easier for them to buy. Let me set up this little situation with questions. How many of you would give me $100 for an item that you absolutely knew was worth only $50? Can I see your hands? I don't see a single hand going up. How many of you would give me $100 for an item that you knew was worth only $50 if I used my three best closes? I mean powerhouse closes on you. Still no hands going up. How many of you would give me $100 for an item you knew was worth only $50 if I kind of uh, paraded the sympathy button? I mean, my family is in need. I got a boy that's going to have to drop out of school if I don't make some sales. The answer, I still don't see any hands are going up. Now, what I'm trying to establish is this. When the prospect has said no, what they're really saying is based on the information you've given me so far, your price is up here. Your value is way down here. And I'm not going to give you a big stack of money for a little stack of benefits. That's what they're saying. And so when the prospect says no, and you say, oh, you know you want it, go ahead and sign here. Or you're going to get it sooner or later, go ahead and sign here. You are not selling. You are irritating. You're coming across as a high-pressure salesperson. When a prospect says no, they're basing it on what they know at that point. And if they do not know enough to say yes, if you try to pressure them into buying them, all you're going to do is irritate them. So in the closing process, remember it must be educational. Since they've said no based on what they know, if you'll let them know more, then the chances are good that you can change the value and get the sale. Every closing effort should be educational in the process. And your integrity here is a gain at stake. You want to keep it exactly in the truthful lane. Don't oversell. When you oversell, you get, a, you get in trouble. I'm reminded so much of the story of the Roman Catholic girl dating a Southern Baptist boy. After about the fifth date, that gal came in one night and she was motivated. I mean, she was excited. She had those stars in her eyes. She was just skipping up the front steps and mama knew daughter was in trouble. She said, daughter, we're going to have to terminate this relationship. You know, us Catholics don't marry those Baptists. Those Baptists don't marry us Catholics. And the girl said, Mom, said, I've fallen in love with the boy. Can't we do something? And like all mothers since the beginning of time, she responded to a daughter's need. And she said, yes, daughter, I believe there is. Maybe we can sell this boy on taking instruction. Maybe we'll make him a good Catholic. And when he gets to be a good Catholic, then rather obviously uh, the marriage will be absolutely fine. So they went to work to sell him.
Well, it was an easy sale because he was already sold on the product. I mean, it moved smoothly. He started taking instructions. The wedding day was set. The announcements were sent out. The the gifts started coming in. Everything was all go. Three days before the wedding, the girl came in shedding those big old crocodile tears. She said, Mom, it's all off. Send back the gifts. Call the priest. Cancel the church. Tell everybody it's no go. Mother said, well, daughter, I'm puzzled. I don't understand what happened. I thought we had him sold on being a good Catholic. girl said, Mom, that's the problem. said, we have oversold. He's going to be a priest. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. For more information about equipment financing and asset-based loans, visit our website, applecapitalgroup.com. That's applecapitalgroup.com. Or call us at 866-611-7457. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And remember, you can always get to the core via iTunes. You'll find all our previous episodes there. And thanks again for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet.